Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 41. Assuming I've done my job correctly and that I was able to trust technology, this episode has been made available for you as early as Friday, March 19th. I've now been doing this podcast for several months, but it is the first week in which a episode was due to release on a week that I'm going to be away from the house. And so had to plan ahead, had to post this five days in advance uh, so that it would come out on time. So I'm assuming that it worked because if it didn't, you'd have no idea what was going on and wondering where is this week's episode of Life in the Pit. So I'm assuming that you are enjoying it, and uh, and it's good because I have a really fun interview today with Andy Mock. Before I mention more about him, uh, just the usual reminders, please, it means a lot if you share each episode, if you enjoy these episodes, share them with those who would also be interested. Also, please, if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and review. That's also very helpful. And if you want to help the operating costs of the show, you can go to davidlanemusic.com slash podcast, and there is a donate button. Uh, you are no, under no obligation. This is a free podcast. Uh, and also, while you're there, feel free to click on the contact button, uh, leave me some feedback. And also, if there's episodes missing on your app, I know like if some, some of you go to YouTube for the playlist, Life in the Pit, for whatever reasons, there are episodes missing there. Spotify only starts around episode seven or eight. I can't remember which one uh, because we weren't able to get on board at the very beginning. But um, davidlanemusic.com slash podcast, you can find all of them there if you want to catch especially some of the early episodes. Well, my guest today is not exactly brand new. Andy Mock did make an appearance on Life in the Pit back in November. On episode 26, I talked to Al Stevens about conducting the annual performance from Community Theater of Greensboro, uh, their annual production of The Wizard of Oz. And I worked with him on that show back in 2015, and that is when I met the accompanist, Andy Mock. And uh, as a bonus feature for that episode, I had some people associated with the show, including Andy Mock, offer some memories, and I'll, I'll be pro- providing an excerpt of that in the midst of this interview that I had with Andy. As I tell Andy in the interview, um, from one accompanist to another, sometimes when you can do your job really well, you don't always trust someone else to do the job when, you know, when it's taken out of your hands. And I never even for a second felt apprehensive on the two shows that I've done with Andy. He's a very good accompanist, and, and I don't just mean he plays the piano well, he reads the book well, but he knows what's needed in rehearsal, and that's such an important thing about accompanying. And we talk about what are some of the things that makes a good accompanist as opposed to just someone who can play the piano well, because those things are very important. And if you find an accompanist that can do those things, that we're going to be discussing, 
that is someone that you definitely want to have on board with your production whenever possible. And besides being a great accompanist and also an experienced music director, Andy is just a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, there's a reason that so many actors love working with him and music directors as well. And here's my interview with Andy Mock. So Andy, how, th- how have things been going? The last time that I was aware of what you were doing when you weren't in theater, uh, you you were working at a place where all the employees found out they didn't have a job after everyone on Facebook knew about it. It was like, it was kind of, wasn't like well planned. <laughs> like well, you no, know, it's not, it's not perhaps how you would want to find out that you're the, the um, institution that you worked for closed. Right. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a choice. Yes. <laughs> a choice. That's true. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, I love your kitty in the background. That's oh, beautiful. Thanks. kitty. <laughs> he, that used to be his perch when he was a kitten mm-hmm. and um he doesn't realize that he's grown oh. so he, he barely fits up there but that's his that's his place yeah uh, until something crashes they just never learn you know, <laughs> you know I, I figure as long as it's still standing who's you know right um so so after you're kind of uh surprise <laughs> you don't have a job anymore uh what have you done since then because i know you you you're talking about you've had a show lately so i assume you've got you've got something you're doing i have actually when the the uh, american hebrew academy closed i was already um retired from the state hmm. um so i wasn't in quite as dire a situation as a lot of the people there found themselves hmm. um i also was already teaching part-time at Greensboro College. Mm-hmm. So I just took on more stuff there. It allowed me, you know, to do more there. So. Well, that's great. Yeah. And hopefully some of your colleagues have been able to recover from where they were. So yeah, I think, you know, most of them that I, I know a lot of them found teaching jobs at um, Greensboro day school. Mm. So they're there together, which is kind of cool. Right. Cause they see each other and, and, you know, right. so that's good. Right. Matt may have met some of them. I did uh, the music directing at Greensboro Day School for their fall production for three years in a row, which yeah, which is why I didn't see Wizard of Oz for three years. <laughs> it's the same oh, time. Yeah. I, I um I I did the I did the, the upper school musicals for I think four or five years mm-hmm. and didn't get to see Wizard because it was always the same weekend. Right. Or it seemed like it was. Well, as I told, uh, you know, I told Al Stevens when I talked to him, you know, Wizard of Oz, I believe, was a 19-piece pit. And I may be counting you, so it may be like you plus 18, but I'm not sure. Um, I did Pippin. We did 17 players. And uh-huh. and I know that Elon was doing something that had double-digit players. And, and I'm like, well, these are, a lot of these are the same musicians. I don't know how this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it it does seem that we all seem to call the same people, right? And um, uh, and and you know, it's not that there are there are plenty of musicians to do all those shows. That's a great thing about this area, but there aren't that many people that you've worked with that you trust for a first call. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I mean, we all work with the same people, so it, it makes sense for us to want to use those people again because that's who we know, right? Uh, but I've gotten some really good referrals from people who I've called and said, I can't do it, but called this person. I didn't know who they were and called them and they worked out great. So it's always nice to make 
new contact. Right. So I will have said this in the introduction, but, uh, you know, you are in theater. I know you may, mainly as an accompanist, but of course you've also done music directing. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but I just want to say up front, um, when I worked with you for the first time in The Wizard of Oz in fall of 2015, that was the first time I had done anything in theater where I was not the accompanist. I had always been kind of either accompanying someone else music directing or doing both music directing and accompanying. So it was the first time I was doing vocal directing, had an accompanist. Um, and I'd been in other situations, not for theater where I had had to work with somebody else doing the accompaniment. And I got to say, I was nervous going in. I hadn't worked with you before. People said good things. Uh, but even since then I've worked sometimes with someone else doing the accompanying and there's that thought of, I wish I could just play this myself. <laughs> and I never, I never once had that feeling with you. It's like, oh, thank you. That's, it, a, that's a huge compliment because I mean, being in the same boat, I would rather just music direct from the piano mm -hmm. because by the time you tell an accompanist where you want them to be or what you want them to do, you could have done it already. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I have, I have, you know, a couple of accompanists that I've worked with, you know, in years past that I trust mm -hmm. uh, that are intuitive enough. We're, we're kind of on the same same wavelength. Um, I've never had the pleasure of working with you as an accompanist. Right. <laughs> but you would certainly be on my list. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of it's not just necessarily how they play the book, how they play the accompaniment, uh, but it's like by the time you can tell the person how you want to go over the parts, like I was going over one show and I started off with the compliment and then it passed off to someone else and, and they were fine. But then I realized, well, I've already reassigned some of these vocals and this person doesn't know what they are. <laughs> and, you know, so that's just a tricky situation. And um, yeah, so in, being a good accompanist, I, th I think it's a lot more than just being a simply good pianist. And um, I certainly want to talk about that, but let's let's catch up with that point. At some point, you didn't play music, and then you did. So uh, how did you get into music? How old were you? Um, I didn't start piano until I was 11. Hmm. Um, I'd wanted to start it much earlier, but... We didn't have a piano. So I used to play the dining room table. Okay. <laughs> um, I would put on records and I would play along on the table. And after enough time passed that there were like permanent places on the dining room table where the stain had worn away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my mom was like, perhaps we should buy him a piano. <laughs> um, so they did. Um before that, my, my grandparents had stored a piano for another relative. And so I would go over to their house when they had it and I would play around on it. And then I had friends that had pianos at their house. So I, I played around on one, but I'd never, I didn't know what I was doing. Right. I would just pick stuff out. So I didn't really formally start until I was 11. Right. Um, with At church, mm -hmm. where a lot of people start lessons. So. Right, right. Yeah. And actually, you know, that's interesting you say that because I do have a lot of students that are like, uh, well, you know, I'm going out of town. We don't have an instrument. And I'm like, find a desk or a table. 
It's like it's about eighty percent as good. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, just um, even a even a paper keyboard. I yeah. tell my students, you're somewhere and you have yeah just a, a three octave paper keyboard. Practice the fingerings. Well, I mean, there's an advantage to it because if you think about it, when you're playing something, especially if it's something that you're learning. You know, it's not like something like Wizard of Oz where you've you know played it for seven plus years or whatever. Uh, but maybe like the first time you played Wizard of Oz, <laughs> uh, if you think about that, your brain's trying to do two things at once. It's trying to figure out what to play, but it's also trying to listen to you playing. And so if you just take that away from the piano and go play it on the table, you're not listening anymore. You're you're more focused on how to play it. And then you take that back to the piano and now you can listen a little bit more. It's not so bad. <laughs> Sometimes it sounds better on the table. Yes. <laughs> Few, fewer mistakes or fewer that anyone can call you on. <laughs> right. Hey, nail that. Yep. <laughs> um, so did that take you, uh, say, so I guess you started lessons when you, you know, at church when you were 11. Um, did you carry that on through high school? Did you do any other instruments or just keep playing the piano? Um, I actually, I don't tell many people this. I got a, when I was uh, in 10th grade, mm -hmm. I got a clarinet scholarship to School of the Arts. Ah. <laughs> um, but I also played clarinet in the band. Right. Um, but I was always, piano was always my instrument. Mm -hmm. I just did clarinet so I could be in marching band. Right. Um, and then I did a couple of summers at School of the Art in their School of the Arts in their summer program, um, and worked with Bob Lestokin. And then he tried to get me to come there, and I was like, "No, I, mm, I mean, no." Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't enjoy playing the clarinet enough to want to do it all the time. Right. Yeah. Having a secondary instrument can come in handy, though. Uh, you know, I played French horn, and you know, for band. And I never considered myself very, you know, great at it, but, you know, it was, I was, a, I was pretty good, yeah. but not compared to piano. And, and, and what I really wanted to do was compose. So when I, it came time to audition, uh, for my eventual college and, um, you know, I wanted to be a composition major. I wanted piano to be my principal instrument. And they said, that's good. We're going to offer you most of your scholarship, though, to play French horn in the orchestra and wind ensemble. And oh, was, wow. And, uh, and, and then for piano, it's like, you know, we want you to accompany three or four hours a semester or something like that. So, And that'll be your total scholarship. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool. You got to keep your French horn playing up. Yeah. And it, and it kept it up through college. And I used it a little bit after college, but, you know, not so much. It, it wasn't something that... I mean, there. I I came out of college and knowing there were some things that I couldn't do, like I couldn't flutter tongue, triple tongue, do all the stuff like that. I also had no low, no low range at all. <laughs> uh, I could do the high notes, but even that wasn't so great unless I got a better instrument because like the A flat above the staff would never tune with any fingering combination at all, and I could go to the A B flat B C above it, but that A flat is just a sour note and. So I was like, if I'm going to be a French horn player, I'm going to have to learn how to do these things and spend a few thousand dollars on a better instrument. Yeah. It's like where, or I could go, you know, pay less than 2000 for a good keyboard. <laughs> you go. Yeah. That, that, that's an easy choice. And I already know how to play that. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, some, sometimes, you know, you just can't do everything. I, there's so many things I'd like to do, but... Just can't do it all. <laughs> um, 
So did you go to college as a music major? I did. I um, I went to UNCG yep. for my undergraduate and graduate degrees in piano. Right. And really wanted to do a master's degree in accompanying. Mm-hmm. But my teacher said that he wouldn't teach me if I wasn't uh, an applied piano major. Oh, okay. So I was like, okay. I, I knew I could still accompany after, which I did. Yeah. Um, about the accompanying degree. Right. Um, and then was accepted to the accompanying program at um, Indiana University in Bloomington, mm-hmm. but ended up getting a, some work at UNCG as an accompanist. And I was like, so do I want to go work on a degree to get a job or do I want to start a job? So I didn't do the doctorate. Right. I've thought about whether or not I regret that. And I really don't. Uh, The only time I regret it is when I'm looking at a job opening for like teaching music theory or something like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's so funny. I went to a college at a time where there were professors with doctoral degrees, but there were more professors that I had that only had a master's. Yes. Uh, but I understand that uh, that basically that was a time in the past. And now you, you if it's a university, you pretty much have to have a doctorate. If you want anything that's not truly adjunct, you know, with any kind of tenure pay or anything at all. So, well, I, it's it's interesting when I, I taught at High Point University for 15 years mm-hmm. with a master's degree, didn't have a problem getting a job there. Mm-hmm. Um and then I guess when the academy closed, there was an opening for what I did at High Point University before. And so I called the head of the music department, which who was a former student, and said, so do I even, is there even a chance for me to apply for this job? And he was like, we'd love to have you. I know you worked here before, but without a doctorate, we won't even process your application. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's the the stakes are different now. I know, yeah. You could get a you could get a good university job with a master's degree, but you can't anymore. Right. So. Yeah, it's become a become a necessary thing for that. But you know, aside from teaching in a university, I haven't ever found that not having a doctorate is a problem. I have a lot of former students who have doctorates and can't get jobs. Right. Yep. So yeah, it's it's definitely a <laughs> if you're in that boat, if you're a musician, you're thinking, should I get a doctorate or not? Uh, I would just say, how badly do you want to be a tenured track professor? And you know, and also maybe weigh how many of those jobs there are and what your competition is. And it's just, um, you know, I I think I don't know if I I don't know if I've said this on here before. This may be new to people. You know, speaking of UNCG. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, this is just kind of a sidebar. So, you know, it was suggested to me that maybe I have a UNCG episode sometime because so many of y'all have come from UNCG. There's obviously something there <laughs> that so many of you mus- musicians that I have worked with that are great musicians have gotten a degree there. Um, but I was considering going to get my doctorate in conducting. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be instrumental conducting or choral conducting, but I kind of thought to myself, uh, you know, as long as I'm not asking for a big scholarship, I should be able to, you know, with my credentials, I should be able to get in. Uh, they both sat me down and said, you know, and in the same time, you know, and they said, um, 
based on what you've done so far and what your goals are, I think you'd have a hard time getting into this program as a doctoral student. And, and, and it was like, it was because of the experience that I hadn't had already, like, but I hadn't worked with an orchestra enough. I didn't have enough hours uh, to be considered a serious candidate for instrumental conducting. And then for vocal conducting, um, you know, I didn't have enough pedagogical experience, you know, as a voice teacher and, and all of that. So it's like, I was in that mid range and they just said, but honestly, you don't need it because take everything you're doing and just expand your network. You know, it's yeah. like, go meet these people in New York or LA, depending on which route I wanted to go. So that's all you need for what you want to do. You don't need a doctorate for that. <laughs> so, that, that would be all I need to hear. And I'd be like, okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did you get into theater? What was your first show? Um, my first show was in fifth grade. Hmm. Um, and I played King Agamemnon in the Iliad. And then I did, at some point, right around that same time, I did Oliver with like a summer theater group at the YMCA. Right. So theater was part of your life before music, at least officially. Uh, kinda, yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was always a, a theatrical child. I was one of those kids that would put on plays in the backyard with my neighbors and the dog and mm-hmm. you know, drama has always been a part of my life. Yeah. But um, I, I did the musicals in high school and then didn't really do any musical theater for like, didn't do any in college or graduate school. When I started working at UNCG after graduate school, I was involved with the musicals there at UNCG. Mm-hmm. Um, and did two summers of summer rep with them. And then music directed working uh-huh. as a student. Show. Um, but I did, that was the first show I think I MD'd ever. Mm-hmm. Most of my background, first 20 years of my career, was all in opera and art song. Mm-hmm. Because in graduate school, I took the vocal pedagogy courses. I studied voice all through college sang in the operas, in the ensembles. Right. I got cast in a role one time and I turned it down. I was like, I am not singing in front of these people. (laughs) Nice. New. Give it to one of them. Right. And I assume that that's carried after college. Have you ever had any lulls where you haven't been doing music for theater? No. Nice. (laughs) I know, I know. I was thinking about that when you sent me the questions. I was like, I have never had, except for the, there's a year, I had a gap year, mm-hmm. as they call it, after graduate school where I had a sales management job. Right. Um, if every, if anything ever, you know, fortified the idea that I needed to be in music, that was it. Right. Uh, that, was, that was a miserable year. And I missed, I didn't play. Um, Cause I didn't have time to. And then they called me from UNCG and said their accompanist for the opera had gotten really sick and had to go home. Could I come in and fill in? Hmm. So I put it around my schedule and I went back and I was like, yeah, I need to be doing this. Oh yeah. So, and then I got, they, I got a job offer and I told the salespeople, this has been fun. Not really, but I got to go do, you know, this other thing. Yeah. As soon as, uh, as soon as I graduated school of the arts, I, 
uh, I got a job at a local music store trying to sell pianos in Winston. And uh, I got one good check as far as a commission. And it was when I was able to, able to persuade my own church to uh-huh. upgrade their piano. <laughs> that was it. I didn't sell Stranger anything. And after, like, in, in my mind, it always seems like this this took more than a year, but I think it was about seven months. And the manager of the store, after the piano teacher left, had moved, said, we got all these prospects. David, would you consider teaching? Would you consider doing any of this? And I didn't want to. Uh, I, I think I think I was profoundly affected by the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, you oh, know, wow. which is, uh, you know, it's about a guy who has aspirations on like being a big composer. And he ends up in his mind getting stuck teaching. And of course, he doesn't realize till the end of the movie how much he's affected everyone's life and how it was what he was meant to do. <laughs> but I had that moment where, you know, th- that's not how I saw the movie. When I saw that in college, I was like, that's a cautionary tale right there. <laughs> Don't get stuck. Story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so when I, I didn't, I was reluctant to begin teaching. Um, but, you know, just from a financial standpoint, you know, given how little I sold things, I think I, I got a few students and realized as soon as I had 10 students teach that I was teaching for a half hour. So I'm doing five hours of teaching a week. I was like, I'm making what I would make in the store without selling anything. So it's like get a few more people than that. And because I was doing like I was doing part time on the floor. I went from full time to part time while I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And at some point I just said, I tell you what, <laughs> I'll just teach. That's all I need. There you go. It does not suck. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I when I started college, I mean, I totally planned on being a concert pianist. Um, and boy, did that turn out to be not what I wanted to do. Right. And you know, the last thing I ever wanted to do was teach. Had no, no interest in teaching whatsoever. No thank you. Talk to her. Oh, yeah. Um, but when I started teaching because of a financial need, mm-hmm. I was like, I like this. Right. Why did I not want to do this? And I, the last thing I wanted to do was go around and, and do recitals and, and play solo piano stuff. So it's, it's funny what you think you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like I swore I would never, ever, ever teach small children. And right. I taught elementary music for 11 years. Right. And it's, I loved it. Yeah. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Uh, life has a way of laughing at you when you say, oh, yeah. I don't, I'll never do this or I don't want to do this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I don't think a lot of people who are playing piano realize the standard that's out there. I've actually, I've had some students that I know that I could measure the amount of time they were practicing in a week, you know, with hours on my hands, you know, like whole week, uh, uh, on one single digits on one hand, uh, and probably not use all the fingers. And then they're telling me when they're in 10th grade, I'd like to go to North Carolina school of the arts and be a piano performance major. And I'm like, this is where I have to have a hard conversation. The music you're playing now, the people who are getting accepted were playing when they were 
when they were in second grade or third grade, you know, and, and they were already practicing five times as much as you. And, you know, and I hate to have that conversation, but I have to say, this is, this is not something you do on a whim, but you know, like I went to school of the arts for the film music program and I, I made friends with somebody who was a piano performance major. He was an undergraduate and we started talking about the Chopin preludes, and I was thinking of the the two or three preludes that I learned that I really enjoyed. And he just kind of said nonchalantly, "Man, I had to I had to play all twenty four of those in in recital for memory when I was a senior in high school." And mm-hmm. and, and just like it was kind of a it was kind of a bummer, you know, that he had to do that. But I was just thinking, he had a teacher telling him in high school, "Learn all twenty four Chopin preludes and play them in concert but that's what that's what they do and it's like yeah. I look at things like the hammer clavier sonata and I'm like meh I don't, I don't have enough time in my life to spend on that you know or yeah. transcendental etudes of list but yet if you're a pianist you got to learn all of those there, there you know there are these certain things that um, there are more things in life I want to play it's like I could learn you know, I could learn all of Rogers and Hammerstein's shows in the time it takes me to learn a few pages of some of these other pieces. <laughs> you go. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just, a, it's such a huge time investment. I, I had some students at the academy who really thought they wanted to, you know, go to college and major in piano because they'd taken my piano classes and they had learned, you know, a piece. And, um, you know, I thought I put in five hours a day mm-hmm. when I was in college. I Not as much in high school because I didn't have the time. But I did a good three hours every day in high school mm-hmm. just to, you know, get to a point where I could be ready to audition for colleges. Yeah. Uh, and you, you don't you can't really tell them because mm-hmm. they don't want to hear it. Right. So you send them on their audition to Boston. Yeah. You know, and they come back and you ask them knowing the answer. So how did it go? <laughs> and they're like, you know, mind blown. Right. I don't know what happened. And of course they don't get in. And then they're, you know, right. disappointed. Yeah. And angry at you because you didn't get them ready. Right. Um, but sometimes it takes that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a cutthroat business. Right. Uh, with theater, I do want to ask you, you know, your, your episode is going to be released right after the um, second of two parts that I did talking about keyboard programming. So I thought since I'm talking to you next, do you identify more as a pianist or do you think of yourself as a keyboardist? Oh, I'm a pianist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't give me buttons to push. <laughs> Um, no, I'm I'm the guy that always asks my students at the college, how do I do this? Right. <laughs> so, no, I'm not a keyboardist. Right. I mean, I still read paper music. Right. I don't, I don't put it on my um, tablet and do, do all that stuff. Now, to be fair, I use the tablet now, but I only got it for this past summer uh, when we were doing an outdoor show. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And, well, when music, not a good combination. Right. And I was like, I, I am not going to be chasing these pages while I'm trying to, you know, 
play this music and lead the bands. Like, <laughs> all I have to score is blow off the stand during a show. Oh yeah. <laughs> and if you're the only one playing, then it's kind of obvious. Yeah. Now somehow I got through your good man Charlie Brown outside at Louisville with, okay, uh, with the book. But I, I think maybe. I don't know. Maybe they had it angled right so the wind wasn't a big deal or something, or we just lucked out. <laughs> you have to do one of these before you start. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you've spent many years. Uh, actually, I'm not sure how many. How many years have you been on the Wizard of Oz? Just six. Yeah, six years. Okay. So you've spent six years on the Wizard of Oz, and here is uh, the memory that you shared of that. Hi, everybody. My name is Andy Mock, and over the past 25 years, I've managed to play every role in The Wizard of Oz at least once, some of them twice. I did Toto a couple of years. Six years were as rehearsal pianist and orchestra keyboard player. The score for the show is horrible, um, and if anyone else ever has to play it, then, you know, God go with you. It's a literal reduction, so every instrumental part has been put into the score so you literally need about six hands to play it so you have to figure out what to leave out that's the fun part i have loved my time with wizard i will miss doing it this year and i hope we could can continue it after this pandemic leaves this earth so how did you get into playing the wizard of oz well <laughs> comma Yep. Um, I actually, the, my first experience with Wizard was, I think, the fourth, third or fourth year they had done it. Okay. And I volunteered backstage because my nephew was a munchkin. Right. And my sister couldn't do her volunteer because she was in the orchestra. Right. So I told her I would go in and take her hours. And I went in on a Saturday and did a matinee and then the night show. Um, and I was in charge of the boys' dressing room upstairs. Mm. So that was my first experience with um, And that's how I met Stephen. Right. Um, because Stephen was playing the scare. Um, and then I didn't actually play for the show until seven years ago. Okay. Um, and then I did it for five years, skipped a year, because I had a show at school that I couldn't do both. And then came back for the 25th, right. which was last year, two years ago. Okay. The last one they did. Okay, nice. So I only played six years. So who brought you in? Was it Mitchell or was it Al? Um, I think I asked Mitchell if I could do it. Oh, okay. Nice. And he, he of course, said, of course, darling, I didn't think you'd want to do it. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think I do. I had actually MD'd the show in another city. Ah. And so I knew the score. I mean, everybody knows the score because everybody's seen the movie. But um, I played it for rehearsals for the other production. And um, I think Stephen was auditioning that year. And I thought, well, it'd be fun to do it together. So, right. Uh, I remember, you know, when I, when I found out that you weren't going to be there for a rehearsal and it was going to be a run through of act one. It was like the first time we'd run it. And I hadn't had a chance to like really look at it. So it wasn't sight reading, but I, I got like one time to play through it. And I was like, of course you can't be here on act one. It's like that whole twister scene. 
and and I was like, I don't even know. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't play. Ex- I know I didn't play exactly what was on the page. I'm not sure oh, what. Per- I don't know what percentage I did play. <laughs> the score is horrible. Yeah, because it's literally a. I mean, they have put every orchestra part in there. Yeah. It's it's a literal reduction of the orchestration. So the first thing you have to do is figure out, okay, what can I play that will sound like what it's supposed to and leave out half of this stuff because right. you would need to use both feet and another person to play what's written. Right. So you you kind of have to make your own transcription. Right. And, uh, um, you know, the other show I worked with you on um, was Gypsy in spring of 2016. And I can't remember if that, I mean, that book was easier than Wizard, but I don't know if it was a lot easier than Wizard. <laughs> yeah, it's totally playable. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a fun score to play. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the whole reason that I got involved. I, um, I'd i never worked with CTG before. I, I called up Mitchell and I asked, yeah, I, I would really like to, because that was a bucket list show. I didn't listen to a lot of cast recordings before I ever did a show, but that that was one. Into the Woods was one. And there, there weren't many others, but, you know, Gypsy was one that I really liked and I uh, wanted to do that show as a music director. And he said, okay, since we haven't worked with you before, we need a vocal director for Wizard of Oz, which is coming up first. Would you do that? Well, then we'll see how we work together and all. <laughs> they wanted to see if you would run off screaming. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, make it through and come back. I, I wish I could have a podcast of just interviewing my friends when I told them. I've been asked to vocal direct for the Wizard of Oz for their cast of 100 in Greensboro. It'd just be funny to just hear what they had to say. (laughs) I'm sure there were some words. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It wasn't anything bad. It was like, okay, David. (laughs) You go do that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my. Um, But, yeah, so we've talked about, in fact, you shared in your memory some of the experiences of doing that score um and and what it's been like to work on that each year but let's just talk a little bit about you know being an accompanist so we talked about you know, being a accompanist as a you know a different type of standard technically i guess speaking than being a concert pianist you know at a certain level but what are some of the things that you've had to develop as an accompanist that maybe most pianists don't think about that's like beyond just playing the book? Well, there's the whole sight reading element because a lot of times if you're playing auditions for something, I mean, people bring in stuff that you're not going to be familiar with. Mm -hmm. So, and people used to ask me all the time, how do I get better at sight reading? Mm -hmm. Or how does one, one, not me, get better at sight reading? And I'm like... I don't have any answers for that. Right. Because I, I, you know, I was fortunate. I was, I was able to sight read a lot of things. Right. And then after a while, the more you play, the more repertoire you get familiar with, and then you don't have to sight read as many things. Yeah. Um, now but, I can but, answer that from experience because I, I was not a good sight reader. And then, and, and that was something I discovered when I got to college, I had been a play by ear member. I, I basically, the skill I had when I got started was as I was learning it, I memorized it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I memorized like everything I ever played up to a point up until I started doing theater when I, the volume of work got so much, you know, but, but I find about by the end of the show, I've memorized most of the shows. It's still a skill that I 
that I have maybe not as strong as I used to. But the simple answer when someone asks, how do I get better at sight reading is sight read. Just get some stuff and start playing it. Start with, you know, go get a method book, you know, that's like really easy. Uh, Old MacDonald had a farm and just go through primer level one, level two, level three, whatever. And until your level of music goes up and up and, and, and actually don't stop for any mistakes. Keep your eyes one measure past what you're actually playing. Just get used to that process and you'll get better at sight reading. Just 15, 20 minutes a day. Don't miss a day. It's like exercising a muscle. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I did, I don't know that it was the best course, but at college, I just decided to, I had a book that was the Well-Tempered Clavier, book one and two of Bach. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm just going to play the whole thing. It took all summer, you know, and some of the ones I could get pretty close to tempo the first attempt and others I was like maybe five, six times slower than it was supposed to be. But I was just, I'm going to play this entire book. And then I did that at, uh, I, I hadn't done that in many years. A couple of years ago, I decided to take the complete Mozart sonatas and just mm-hmm. go through them. And it's like, there were the, there were of course the two that I had learned before. <laughs> so those are easy, but then the, you know, the rest of them, you know, it's kind of fun uh, to just go through that, but you get that exercise of just see it and play it, see it and play it. Um, but, but there's some other things I think that, you know, talking about when I'm music directing and I've got to work with an accompanist, you know, you kind of talked about, you got to kind of learn to think like the music director. What does the music director want? You know, so what are, you know, what are some things that you've kind of picked up on, on like, um, are there things you have to do like helping out vocalists who aren't getting their part or, you know, I, I would say you have to listen quite a bit, right? Oh yeah. Listening's, uh, you know, I mean, that's a given. Right. Um, and then, and then also I think sometimes you're playing a piano book and it doesn't fully show like everything that they're, that they're going to hear when an orchestra, and there might be like an important part that's not in the piano, but maybe you have it cued or maybe you've heard it or something like that. And <laughs> there's just some things that, done, I know that we've got to figure out. Yeah, since you've been a music director and working with other accompanists, you know, what what are the things that you wish that they would do better if they're if they're lacking? The ones that I've worked with that have been successful collaborations are either people that also music direct, mm-hmm. people who work in theater. So they've been around enough music directors to kind of anticipate what's going to be needed. Right. And when I'm working with a music director as an accompanist, I try to, a lot of times I'll think, okay, what would, what would I do to help these singers out right now? And a lot of times I'll just go ahead and stick their melody in the accompaniment, whether or not the music director asks for it. And if they don't want it, they'll say, you know, quit playing that. Right. (laughs) But the, the least successful collaboratory um, situations I've had have been with people who are mainly pianists. They don't sing or they don't know a lot about the voice. Right. And they haven't done a lot of theater. Right. Um, because 
I'm going to go ahead and say this, but when I was in school, there was this big separation between the music school and the theater department. Right. And, you know, you couldn't do both. Right. God forbid, gasp. Mm -hmm. um, and musical theater was inferior to opera and art song. And so if you were a pianist, mm -hmm. you would not want to lower yourself to play musical theater stuff because that's just, you know, right. kind, of, kind of like, I think I'll go strip for burlesque or something. Right. Um, <laughs> so there was an attitude thing involved. And I think a lot of, a lot of accompanists that I've worked with that haven't played a lot of musical theater thought it was, thought, you know, this is going to be nothing. I don't even have to try. And so there wasn't maybe as much effort put forth as there would have been if they were in an opera rehearsal or in a choral rehearsal. Yeah. They don't consider it to be as, as important or right. it's not really art. Right. So that may piss some people off, but hey, I don't care. I'm old. I don't care. Uh, no, that uh, I've I've experienced that in other schools, you know, where, and of course the, it makes no sense to me if you're a pianist because, I I don't think I ever played any Italian arias in vo voice lessons that intimidated me, but the very mm -hmm. first time I went into someone who was a musical theater major, it, it's like. They were four weeks into doing I Could Have Danced All Night from My Fair Lady. And I knew My Fair Lady. I, it was the first movie musical I ever saw. So I knew that song. And that did not prepare me for the first time I saw the accompaniment. I was, it's like the, the chord changes, the how fast it goes. And, yeah. and I was just like, this is harder music. And, and, and I had a little bit of intimidation for, especially some of the like classic musical theater for, for a while of just doing those songs and lessons. Uh, but, you know, I think what we've kind of dug out here today is that to be an accompanist for theater. And I think you can pair this up with the episode I did with Heidi uh, Dalek. You've got to get inside the mind of a music director, which helps if you have been one, if you've done at least a little bit of experience and you also kind of you have to fill the gaps, and you have to support what's weak in the moment. You know, it's not just. And I think the what you're what you're saying. You know, with some of the pianists who, who have not been successful, uh, pianists are not good good accompanists if they are literalists. If they are looking at the score and say, ah, here's what the right hand plays. Here's what the left hand plays. And, you know, sometimes you even hear the comment, well, well, that's not what it says in the score, you know, or that's, you know, when you're trying to make a, a criticism, it's like, I, I know that's not what it says, but, you know, the baritones need help. And, uh, you know, th that flute line is also important, you know, they need to hear that coming in. So it's that flexibility. And it's been 20 years since I, I had to hire an accompanist for my church job. But I remember we had we had two candidates, and the first one that came in was a school of the arts, classical piano major, and she came in and wowed everybody with the technique. But I just and and I could look at the faces of the other people of the committee; they were sold on this person. And I just asked some questions. I said, "Can you transpose? Can you? Uh, if I gave you something with just chord symbols, 
could you play that? <laughs> and it's like, and, and she was honest with her answers. No, I need the music in front of me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, as you said that I'm thinking about, cause I, I play for Temple Emmanuel here in Greensboro and I had for 22 years and that job, because most of the music is not written out, mm-hmm. I either have to learn it by ear or I'm given the melody line and I have to make up the accompaniment. That has done me more good Yeah. Uh, because I had zero improvisational skills right. going into that job and I had to learn them really quickly. And that's something you have to be able to do. I mean, I've, right. I've had auditions where someone will come in and say, I'd like to sing so-and-so and they don't have their music, but the people still, the people auditioning still want to hear it. Right. I have to make up something. Right. <laughs> so that's a whole other skill set. Yeah. So. Uh, well, it's one that I think that you've done really well. Like I said, I never felt when I worked with you as a music director that uh, I wish I could, I wish I could cover it. You, you were covering everything. It's like you were reading my mind. So yeah. I'm going to kind of skip to our kind of a, lightning round of questions here at the end so let's just start with uh what are your what are your favorite shows what are some of the ones that you've enjoyed the most oh gosh um sunday in the park with george Mm -hmm. even though that worked me Mm -hmm. that's one of the hardest scores i've ever played right um but i loved the show i'd always wanted to do it um got to do it checked it off my list um i love oklahoma Yep. Um, people laugh at me. Um, <laughs> and I love Annie. Right. Okay. I've done it 13 times. 13? Well, <laughs> I've been in it. I've music directed it. I've costumed it. Right. Um, I don't ever get tired of it. It's just a good show. Right. Uh, are there any uh, bucket list shows you haven't played yet? Yep. <laughs> um, Spring Awakening. Mm-hmm. Love the show. Yep. Can't seem to get anybody interested in doing it. Right. Um, also, Fun Home, which was actually on the season for Triad Pride Acting Company this year. And our season got, of course, postponed. Right. So we may do it next year, but that's on my bucket list. Um, she Loves Me is mm-hmm. on my bucket list. Um. Also, Myths and Hymns. I don't think I know that one. Show It's a song cycle, so it's more of a review. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Gettle, who did The Light in the Piazza. Yeah. Um, it's a song cycle. It's really some beautiful, complicated songs based on mythology, and um, that's on my list. Uh, that, might, that might be it. Okay. Well, I know we I know we've done Fun Home. I've done Fun Home and Spring Awakening. Um, now you have Flawless. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done the others. I haven't done She Loves Me, but yeah. Yeah, but they're they're great. Uh I think if you if you if you'd want to do those, you have you done next to normal? Um, I haven't, but I've taught a lot of the stuff in Next to Normal to my students. And I had a student do play the son, I can't remember his name, in the high point production that they did a few years ago right i think you'd that, that's a it's a fun show to play yeah it's really yeah. good all right what's a horror story from playing in the pit 
it's, it's basically the same thing that's happened several times. And that's where I'm playing an electric keyboard and the power goes out mm-hmm. in the middle of the show. Yeah. Which is why I prefer playing an acoustic piano. Right. Um, but it happened during falsettos. It happened during Children of Eden. Mm. It may have happened during Fiddler. Right. Yeah, it did because somebody kicked the plug backstage. Oh, yeah. This was at the that this was at the Star Theater. Right. So close quarters. Somebody ran to the plug. I started to play, no sound. Right. So And that's something people notice <laughs> when the keyboard doesn't yeah, play. It's kind of obvious. Oh look, there's no sound coming from the keyboard. Right. I mean, it's almost like if someone kicks the amp and, you know, it's like you're playing violin, you know, you know, and you just had an amp for, and you know, bring that out. Might not get noticed, but it will be noticed if you're playing the, especially the piano one book, you know. <laughs> the other, the other horror story happened at Greensboro Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was conducting Thoroughly Modern Millie and it was time for Muzzy's big solo and the mics all went out. Oh wow! And I had a full pit, mm. so I was trying trying to keep it low enough that people in the audience could hear her. She wasn't particularly loud, mm-hmm. uh, and not make it sound too obvious that all of our sound had just crashed. Right. Um, and plus, it, you got to hear her, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So try to stay with her. Um, that was a bit of a nightmare. I sweated a little that day. So. Nice. Uh, well, let's let's go to the other direction. What's a really fond memory from playing in a show? Oh God, too many. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I mean, I this I don't know why this sticks out, but I my first production of Greece I did. I was playing and conducting, mm-hmm. and at the end of the curtain call, when they motioned to me, they all blew me kisses. Oh, and it made me, and it made me cry. Yeah, I don't. I, so many. I don't, I don't know if I can cough up a specific one. A lot of them have to do with student productions, like right. from my fourth and fifth grade musical theater troupe at Jefferson Elementary, or from the productions at the American Hebrew Academy. So, kids, kids in theater, right? Get you every time. I think that's just about it. Um... It's been a pleasure talking to you and catching up again. So, you know, yeah, it's good to see you. Like, we haven't talked in a minute. So, All right. And that concludes episode number 41. And uh, I'm trying to get out of the habit of teasing next week's episode too much because I'd like to have a little flexibility in there to reprogram as necessary. But I will say, go ahead and say for this week, Uh, I look forward to returning to Broadway next week, and I will catch you next Friday, March 26th. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thank you to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. Theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or leave a donation at davidlanemusic.com podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.